0: In July of 1967, as the War of Imperialist Invasion launched by the USA against Vietnam was entering its third official year, the Congress on the Dialectics of Liberation was held in London. This conference was organized with the stated goal of demystifying human violence in all its forms and the social systems from which it emanates and to explore new forms of action. As Dr. David Cooper, one of the organizers of the Congress, wrote, there seemed to us to be a violent transformation of the idea of the enemy, Firstly, the enemy became transformed into the inhuman, after which the inhuman became non-human. Dr. Cooper wrote of the fear which people in imperialist countries like the USA have that colonized peoples might seek freedom. One human fact that generates most terror in the First World, the imperialist world, is the fact of choice, the beginning of freedom, of spontaneous self-assertion of a whole people. For this reason, among others, the free opponent must be categorized as inhuman. As we move into the year of 2022, it seems clear that we're entering a new era of instability and brinkmanship and saber-rattling, which reflect the Vietnam War era in certain ways, as imperialist powers around the world are seeking to assert their dominance, while capitalists seek to expand their fortunes through the world's biggest industry, war. With all this in mind, we now take a look back to the Congress for the Dialectics of Liberation, with this series of videos highlighting some of the keynote addresses from that event, which took place during a similar time of imperialist expansion and warmongering, with the hopes that we might achieve what David Cooper and his colleagues set out to do back then. At the Congress, we were concerned with new ways in which intellectuals might act to change the world, ways in which we might move beyond the intellectual masturbation of which Stokely Carmichael accuses us. We recognize that radical groups in the first world had been conventionally split, not only ideologically, but on personal lines. There's always some sort of spurious messiah who arouses hope and then disappoints hope. This is not the fault of the messiah, it is the fault of hope. Hope has to have another appointment. In this, our first video of this series, we hear the words of Dr. Jules Henry, a controversial anthropologist who is highly critical of the destructive nature of capitalist society. In this speech, Dr. Henry describes the social characteristics and processes which are exploited by the ruling class to prepare the public at large for violent and bloody wars of imperialist conquest. We've had to compress and lightly edit the speech for time and clarity, but a link to the full reading is in the description. So now, let's turn our attention to Social and Psychological Preparation for War by Dr. Jules Henry. War is fought by social groups. For the conduct of everyday affairs, social groups are integrated, tied together by processes which provide continuity and dependability. In time of war, latent capabilities for action are actualized with the aid of the society's capacity for love, hate, and anxiety. In previous eras, each society was relatively self-contained, and the so-called enemy was usually outside the social system. The enemies of ancient Greece and Rome were often mere objects of their imperial arrogance and greed, having no previous social relations with Greece and Rome. In modern states, however, the enemy is linked to one's own social system by trade, by various cultural ties, by diplomatic relations, and so on. The fact that nations must first officially break relations before going to war testifies to this ambiguity. Thus, one of the so-called achievements of the modern world is to incorporate war directly into the social system. The net consequence of this for the United States has been sundry marshall plans, foreign aid programs, economic development plans for Southeast Asia, and the like. These programs recognize the essentially internal nature of modern war and modern enemies. This is partly a consequence of interlocking international corporations, partly an expression of the need to use one's former enemies against one's former friends, America's use of Japan, particularly of Okinawa, as a staging area and source of supply for the war in Vietnam, and her support of German claims and hopes against the Soviet Union are cases in point. A basic fact of modern warfare, then, is that it occurs within a mutually dependent world political economy. Not all wars are shooting wars or even cold ones. For years, the United States has been fighting a kind of cold war with France, and England is kind of a casualty of that war. France's largely unsuccessful efforts to keep American capital out and its objection to Britain's entrance into the common market are all expressions in part of fear of the United States' economic power. It is clear, therefore, that in preparation for modern war, an interdependent world political economy has within it sufficient conflicts of interest to make all nations potential enemies to all others. One of the evolutionary achievements of modern culture has been to make the idea that anybody can be my enemy at any time acceptable. A consequence of the definition of the enemy as part of one's own social system is a psychological predisposition to accept almost any nation at all as enemy, when the government chooses to so define it. The point is that the social organization of the world has no essence. Instead, those who stand to gain from war, that is, the capitalist class, manufacture a delusional version of the social organization of the world. The delusion is burned into the minds of the population by the media, which is, of course, controlled by the capitalist class. This delusion then becomes mistaken for an accurate perception of the world, seeming as objectively true to the average man as the difference between red and green. The social preparation for modern war involves the following steps. Step 1. Establishment of a world system in which betrayal, conspiracy, and entrapment are so commonplace that at any moment whoever is within the friendly system may be defined as outside of it, so commonplace indeed that people accept it without thinking. Step 2. Manipulation of that system in the interests of particular classes or groups who stand to gain from war. Step 3. The manipulation, the molding of the perceptual capacities of the people by these groups through their control of the mass media. Step 4. The establishment of a worldwide social system which strictly limits choice. I turn now to an analysis of the organization of the American economy in order to show how readily it can be mobilized for anything at all. In order that any social system be mobilized for war, which means mobilization for maximum effort, it must have institutions which can swiftly be integrated into a war system when necessary. While it might appear only natural that America should have been able to produce the implements of war that made victory over the Axis possible in World War II, the astonishing and rapid organization of that productive capability was not accomplished easily, nor was it accomplished just before or during the war. The modern, centralized, militarized, and welfare-directed state is the result of a complex internal evolution taking several decades. The ability of any social unit to wage war, or indeed to exercise power in any way, is a function of its size, of the resources it controls, and of its organization. The United States Steel Corporation, which in 1965 produced one-quarter of the total steel output of the United States is an integrated corporation which owns and operates not only numerous steel-producing and fabricating plants, but also iron and coal mines, limestone quarries, railways, docks, cargo vessels, and loading ships. It manufactures thousands of products ranging from cold-rolled steel to prefabricated housing, cement, ordnance, atomic energy products, components, and launching facilities for nuclear missiles, armor plate, etc., etc., etc. The size of the corporation, however, is not measured only by the plants directly connected with it, but includes also its 17 subsidiaries through which it controls raw materials, railroads, and other transportation facilities in Canada, Brazil, Venezuela, Africa, and the Bahama Islands. Through its management and board of directors, the influence of U.S. steel, meanwhile, extends far beyond its plants and subsidiaries. In 1962, its 18 directors accounted for 85 management interlocks with other companies, over which these directors might be expected to exercise influence, and these interlocks included 20 banks and financial institutions, 10 insurance companies, and 54 industrial and commercial corporations. Thus, Mr. C.H. Bell, for example, was also a director of General Mills Incorporated, the Winton Lumber Company, and the Northern Pacific Railway, and Mr. J.B. Black sat on the board of directors of FMC Corporation, Del Monte Products Company, Pacific Gas and Electric Company, Southern Pacific Company, Shell Oil, Pacific Gas Transmission Company, Alberta Natural Gas Company, and the Alberta and Southern Gas Company Limited. The Dow Chemical Company, manufacturer of napalm and explosives, operates several dozen plants in the United States, but through subsidiaries and through part ownership, it controls countless other manufacturing operations and corporations in the United Kingdom, Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Spanish Sahara, and so on. Literally, the sun never sets on Dow. Thus, through sheer size, through subsidiaries, through ownership of stock in other corporations, and through management interlocks, the large American corporations control much of the productive capability of the planet. In 1951, 135 American corporations owned nearly a fourth of the manufacturing volume of the world. This says nothing about how much is controlled and influenced without being owned outright. The presence of hundreds of corporations, which in their day-to-day operations can, through their social organization, call upon such an immensely ramifying network of productive power, provides the United States with a vast war potential. The internal organization of the companies themselves plus their interlocks does not itself constitute the social organization of American corporate power. These great masses of capital are further organized in what have been called interest groups, the interest group is a group of corporate interests which come to pursue common financial goals. If various companies share board members and own one another's stocks and bonds and so on, we have a common financial interest and therefore a common interest group. I now present an abbreviated account of one such group, the Morgan First National. The structure of the American economy states that this group is for the most part based upon partial control by both of the financial institutions, J.P. Morgan and & Company and the First National Bank, after which the group is named. This partial control is based upon long-standing financial relations. When that passage was written, the group included 13 industrial corporations, 13 public utility corporations, 6 railway systems, and 3 banks besides Morgan and First National. In 1939, their total assets were more than $30 billion. At the end of their analysis of interest groups, the authors of the structure of the American economy ask the following questions which they do not answer. What is the significance of the existence of more or less closely integrated interest groups for the pricing process? What are its implications for the relation between economic and political activity? How and to what extent do the views of leaders in the economic sphere make themselves felt in the life of the community? These questions were not put by Marxists, for the committee that prepared the study was made up of six members of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's cabinet and four experts highly placed in the American government and business. At any rate, it is clear that this is an organization which, once mobilized by government, can exert irresistible power for war or for peace. It has never been mobilized for peace. Now that we understand the structure of corporate control, we need to only determine how the government uses this organization for its own purposes when necessary, or rather, for them to use each other. The most important relationship between business and government in the United States began to take its present form during the Great Depression. Previously to that, it was believed that the capital system was self-regulating. Before the Great Depression nearly overturned the capital system in the United States, it was believed that depressions were somehow an expression of the inexorable operation of an eternal system, and that depressions always worked themselves out spontaneously. Depressions, it was believed, were nature's way of eliminating inefficient and weak firms while leaving the field to strong parent companies, able to beget powerful offspring. The Depression, however, saw so many of the strong fail and threatened so many of the strongest as month after month, year after year, the economy did not recover while more and more businesses failed, that the corporate community was happy to seize the hand of government when it was extended in help. It was this vulnerability that created the new government-underwritten society in the United States, but which also served to mobilize the United States better than ever for war. It was primarily the threat of internal collapse that perfected the underlying structure of mobilization for war, and it is clear that without such mobilization, the economy would have collapsed. As late as 1940, when the United States was starting to arm, a conservative estimate of the number of unemployed in the American labor force was 13%, but by 1944, they had all been put to work and the total number of employed workers had increased by 35%. Organized labor was brought into wartime government. The experience of World War II was not lost on the American labor movement. War meant jobs, plenty of money, and good times. Today, organized labor in the United States is an active supporter of the war in Vietnam, and it is among the most virulent internal antagonists of the Soviet Union. Since 1939, immense U.S. government expenditures for armaments have increased the power of the great corporations and created many new businesses. The aircraft industry, for example, is largely dependent on orders for military aircraft. The entrance of numerous business executives into government service since World War II consolidated the intimate relationship between government and business. It was only natural that upon leaving the armed forces, military men should be eagerly sought as employees by businesses. In July 1960, the corporation General Dynamics alone employed about 200 retired military officers. Meanwhile, we should not forget, of course, that Mr. Robert McNamara, a former president of the Ford Motor Company, is our current Secretary of Defense, and that an earlier one was Charles Wilson, former president of General Motors. Thus, we see how the military and corporations have been married together. I have outlined the organization of American industry that provides the social infrastructure for war. The giant corporation with its ramifying network of plants, subsidiaries, and stockholdings, extends its influence throughout the nation and the world. The American corporate community has abandoned forever the cry against government interference, now fully amalgamated with government, and the military has become part and parcel of American business. Given this structure, the traditional division of our society into business, government, and military seems obsolete and illusory. Given this structure, it is possible to mobilize American industry for war output almost instantaneously. It is not far-fetched to say that now, by its very nature, it is in a constant state of mobilization for war. I have pointed out that before the Great Depression, it was assumed that the capitalist economy was self-regulating, but that the depression experience destroyed that idea forever in the minds of even the most bumptious economists, so that now all the talented men of capitalist economies instantly propose government measures whenever the economy seems to falter, which is now several times per year. The ordinary American, however, does not yet feel that the economy is to be trusted, for it has an unpredictable way of raising prices on him, throwing him out of a job, or making his little investments and speculations vanish. The feeling of vulnerability in the United States is intensified by the fact that the government-business-military complex must frighten the people about socialism because this complex cannot accept the existence of socialism in foreign nations. The emergence since 1917 of this new socialist humanity has been accompanied by the disappearance or weakening of many capitalist powers to the degree that, feeling beleaguered amidst the diminished strength of the capitalist world, America, according to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, has devoted a higher proportion of its gross national product to its military establishment than any other free world nation. This was true even before the increased expenditures in Southeast Asia. The rise of socialism and the doubling of the number of violent revolutions since 1958 left the American corporate community feeling so vulnerable that it eagerly and successfully communicated its fear and hate to the American people through the mass media. The result has been, as everyone knows, a supine Congress and a public that gives support to whatever the American government decides to do any place in the world. During World War II, Japan was our enemy now she's our friend. The Soviet Union was our friend, now she is our enemy. Germany was our enemy, now part of her is friend, part enemy. France was our friend, now she is almost our enemy. Yugoslavia was our friend, now she is our friend one day, our enemy the next, as our foreign policy shifts. During World War II, China was our friend, now she is our enemy. During World War II, Italy was our enemy, now she's our friend, and so it goes. In the ordinary citizen, the result of these wild fluctuations in the definition of enemy and friend can only be mental withdrawal, cynicism, and a readiness to resign decisions to higher powers and experts. On the other hand, such passivity in the presence of radical alterations in the definition of enemy could take place only if we had handed over decisions to higher powers in the first place. The American's lack of involvement in anything but his own standard of living and his own family, plus a persistent feeling of vulnerability, make him accept easily any alteration in foreign policy. In this connection, we see the importance of short-term perceptions. It is disquietingly like the perception of style. Style depends on short-run perceptions, on the fact, for example, that though a dark tie may seem best with one's suit today, there is always present in the mind the reservation that this is not forever but only as long as some power defines it as style. While I do not consider acceptance or rejection of a foreign power homologous with style, I do believe that both rely on a condition of contemporary perception, the withholding of commitment to any view of the world. This superficiality, this fundamental impenetrability of the soul is due to the evanescent quality of modern life and to the basic depression of modern man. A culture has never been found where there was not a permanent harmful factor that served to terrify and to integrate the people and to suffocate deviant opinion. Such perceived threats stifle thought, but also create social solidarity. In the contemporary world, such threats lack traditional definition, and the group in power reserves to itself the right and the power to define who the threat shall be. In the United States, the threat is communism. Incorporated into elementary school readers and sociological tracts, frozen into Supreme Court decisions and loyalty oaths, and consolidated further through embargoes on goods to communist countries, the communist bogey has the qualities of delusion. And the delusion of the communist menace exists in order to prepare the American people for war. When we consider the internal structure of the American corporate community and the fact that the sun never sets on it, it is clear that free world means the part of it that is free for American investment. It is for that reason that fascist Spain, for example, is considered part of the free world. On the other hand, when we realize that there is no American investment in communist countries, we comprehend why the communist world is not free. Americans are used to the expression free enterprise, yet it is clear from the outline of the structure of the American economy that the expression has no meaning at all. Similar processes are at work in labor. The ideal American labor leader nowadays is not one who risks injury or death in a strike, but a careful negotiator who is backed by a team of lawyers and researchers. The labor movement in the United States nowadays is very different from what management confronted in the 1920s armed for deadly combat. Organized labor is probably the most contented segment of the American population. It has shifted from being the most revolutionary group to being the most conservative. Along with these alterations in the structure of American political economy, there has developed a vast sheep-like docility in the population. Grazing on the grasses of affluence, the white American population is one of the most docile on earth. This is ideal psychological preparation for war, because docile people make excellent soldiers. TV shows for adults and for children that portray individuals and nations under attack are the most common program. So for Americans, fear feels good, or at least better than it ever did before. It is hard to be against the war in Vietnam if your pay has gone up because of it. American docility leads to a readiness to accept as friend the nation that was a foe yesterday and to accept as enemy today the nation that was a friend yesterday. Since in the United States one is never threatened really by such erratic definitions, but finds rather that one's standard of living rises, why object? It is a law of learning theory that organisms tend to respond positively to reward. In the American experience, having enemies has been rewarding. The fact that some people have lost sons is of little consequence for the personal detachment, withdrawal, and uninvolvement of the American, his inability to feel for another person's bereavement, his concern only with what is close to him, and with his standard of living make him impervious to the sorrow of others." Furthermore, as I pointed out, the depressive core in the soul of the American population makes people turn away from the anguish of others while brooding only on their own. Threats to the public are selected by the group in power, and the perceptions of the people are shaped to suit the objectives of the group in power. In modern times, perception has rapidly evolved away from tradition-determined perceptions of the world to capitalist class-determined ones, and perception is manipulated by the capitalist-controlled mass media. So one acquires and puts off one's enemies and friends, one's ideas, one's opinions, and one's tastes, somewhat as one changes style. In closing, let's examine the psychological consequences of the disappearance from life of any real options, of any real freedom. It is clear that freedom exists only where there are real options, where the individual or a nation, in spite of its history, can make a choice that is not overdetermined by the system. While it is unlikely that at any time man's choices were not overdetermined by the system, I feel that never before have so many felt that they lived in a room with no exit. This results in apathy and withdrawal from life. The knowledge that there are no options, the feeling that one can do nothing because there are no doors, inevitably contributes to war. For not only does this lack of options lead to ready acceptance of war as a solution to difficult problems, but it creates docility also. Man is everywhere chained to a system in which he perceives no new options, yet... There are new options for the vast and radical political changes that have occurred in the past two generations. Prove that man can create new options where there seemed to be none. Thank you for watching. I'm EJ. This is Non Compete, and if you enjoyed this, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Comradery or Patreon. Comradery is a creator-owned alternative to Patreon. Uh, check out the link in the description if you want to learn more. And be sure to subscribe. And I'm curious, do you think things have changed significantly since 1967, since this speech was first delivered? How do you feel the public is prepared for war today? Sound off in the comments. We'll be doing more videos in this series where we'll be covering speeches by other great speakers, including Kwame Ture, R.D. Lang, and many others. So stay tuned, and we'll see you next time. Peace out. It was a two-week Congress of Intellectuals in London black power people headed by Stokely Carmichael, the flower people represented by Allen Ginsberg, political scientists and a host of sociologists and social psychologists from the U.S. and Britain. The common theme of the meeting was violence and revolution. How to explain them, how to manipulate them, how to avoid them.